the human race does command its own destiny, and that destiny can eventually embrace the stars. The poetic resolve of Lorraine Hansberry. I'm Margaret Prescott, and this is From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archives program that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. This week, we feature selections from our Power of African American Women collection. The Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project has allowed us to uncover historic recordings. I'm a huge fan of the Pacifica Radio Archives. Often the term treasure trove is used to describe the archives, and indeed it is an apt description, and more. It is history captured as no other resource has. It is music and other artistic expression. It is close to 60 years of alternative radio and the history of our vibrant culture and of the movement for change as reflected in the United States on more than 55,000 programs on audio. I don't know that there's anything like it anywhere, and it is not merely a collection of sound, but it is the loving care with which these thousands of hours of precious history are preserved for many generations to come. To enter the archives is like entering a magical world where one can turn back the clock and hear the actual voices of Rosa Parks, of Fannie Lou Hamer, of Lorraine Hansberry, and of Lena Horne, of Dorothy Dandridge, of Carmen McRae, of Diane Carroll. Our theme for this hour is Beat the Drum, the Power of African American Women. And you will hear the voices of women who have lent not only their voice, but their time, their energy and power to civil and human rights, who have stood against racism and sexism, as well as from those in the arts who had to fight their way into film and music and who benefited by those whose battlefield was grounded in the civil rights movement. Like thousands of others, the foundation of who I am today was laid by the civil rights era, by those who sacrificed so much to make the way for us all. While there's no question of the power and strength and inspiration of the civil rights movement, all too often we hear only about the men of that movement. But women were central to the civil rights movement. Indeed, that movement, like so many others, would not have happened at all were it not for women. There are few who would deny that reality from the unknown women of the church who made sure food was made when Martin Luther King came to activist meetings in cities and small towns across the country, to the young women in Birmingham, Alabama, who stood alongside young men and faced off with those attacking them with hoses and dogs, to the mothers, grandmothers, aunts, wives, and other loved ones who cleaned the wounds, nursed wounded warriors back to health, and gave their children courage to go out each and every day and face a hostile world, to the names of those we have come to know about, Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer, Lorraine Hansberry, to name a few. Today, we honor those women. We remember them. We thank them for all they have given us, for all they have taught us, for all they have done. Indeed, their work helped to change not only the United States, but the world.
And we're now going to go to a clip from Rosa Parks from the Power of African American Women CD set. I left work on my way home December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I boarded the bus downtown in Montgomery on Coates Square as the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop. The white passengers had fill the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers, and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the first of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they, on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be uh, two or three men standing, he looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken, along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated, he demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest, and I was bond, bailed out shortly after the arrest. And the trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day, and it is still continuing. Well, Mrs. Parks, what in the world ever made you decide to be the person who, after all these years of Jim Crow and segregation, what made you at that particular moment decide you were going to keep that seat? I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. But, Mrs. Parks, uh, you had been mistreated for many, many, many years, you've lived most of your life in Montgomery, Alabama. What made you decide at the first part of the month of December 1955 that you had had enough? The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. Well, Mrs. Parks, had you planned this? No, I hadn't. It just happened. Yes, it did. Well, have there been many times before in your life when you thought that maybe you were going to do just that kind of thing? I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. But don't you suppose you and many others also thought one time or another you were going to do this thing sooner or later? Well, we didn't know just what to expect. In our area, we always try to avoid trouble and be as careful as possible to stay out of trouble and along this line. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I had not taken a seat in the white section, as has been reported in many cases. The seat where I occupied, we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home even though at times on this on the same bus route we occupied the same seat with white standing if their space had been taken up, the seats had been taken up. And well, I was very much surprised that the driver at this point 
demanded that I remove myself from the seat. You have done something here that I didn't quite understand myself, namely this. You said that you did not take a seat in the white section, that, uh, that, and that is, there's no doubt that has been reported in that way. What happened then, that you were in what is normally a colored section, and because whites had to stand up at this point, the driver asked you to get up to allow someone else to sit down. Yes, white persons. A white person to sit down. Yes. A person who may or may not have been as tired as you. Well, that's true. But who had not paid any more than you had. No, he hadn't. And then what happened? The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police. And I told him, just call the police, which he did. And when they, they came, they placed me under arrest. Wasn't that a pretty frightening thing to be arrested in Montgomery, Alabama? No, I wasn't frightened at all. You weren't frightened? Why no. weren't you frightened? I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. Because you considered yourself a citizen as well as a human being in Montgomery, Alabama. You say you weren't frightened, and yet to be arrested in Montgomery, especially on a charge in which you are, uh, in which you are challenging the whole system of segregation, could be a pretty frightening thing. It could even lead to a certain amount of uh, physical brutality, couldn't it? That's possible. It could have. But this didn't bother you. No, it didn't. And uh, a lot of people, of course, uh, feel quite ashamed at the disgrace of being arrested. Apparently, you didn't feel there was any disgrace involved in this one. No, not in this one. Well, then you were arrested, and what was the charge? Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama and transportation. Yes, but you were sitting in the colored section. What law were you violating? I didn't think I was violating any. Well, Mrs. Parks, at the recent trial of Reverend M.L. King, it was brought up uh, for, by the defense that there had been over many, many years many brutalities and humiliations of Negro passengers on these buses. Uh, can you uh, give us some examples that you yourself have seen or experienced personally of some of these humiliations that took place day after day when you were riding the buses? Yes, I have uh, been refused uh, entrance on the buses because I would not pay my fare at the front and go around to the rear door to enter. Uh, l let me have that again now. You mean you pay your fare at the front and then were forced to walk around and enter into the rear door? Yes, that was the custom if the bus was crowded up to the point where the white passengers would start occupying. And even if it was raining or anything of that sort, you might have to pay your fare at the front and walk back in the rain to the back of the bus and get in. Yes, that's true. Well, Mrs. Parks, uh, then you were arrested and you say you went to, uh, you, you posted bond. Uh, did you have a trial? Yes. And you were found innocent or guilty? Guilty. You were found guilty. And then what? The case was appealed. How did this particular incident of your being arrested and... Uh, and uh, convicted and uh, appealing, how did this lead to this particular protest? From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, 
the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. And Monday morning, when the buses were out on their regular run, they remained empty, and people were walking or getting rides in cars with people who would pick them up as best they could. On Monday night, the mass meeting at the Hill Street Baptist Church had been called, and there were many thousands of people there. They kept coming, and some people never did get in the church. There were so many. And the first day of remaining off the bus had been so successful. It was organized then that uh, we wouldn't uh, ride the bus until our request had been granted. Well, Mrs. Parks, how did word get around Montgomery, Alabama so quickly? Uh, first of all, that you were arrested and uh, convicted, and second of all, how did the word get around so quickly that there would be a meeting and that people would refuse to ride? There were telephone calls from those who knew about it to others, and also an article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat the white section of the bus and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was a first newspaper account. Uh, they didn't write on the day of the trial. Uh, they walked. And then how come they kept right on walking? I feel they kept on walking because I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine. And they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. Uh, how did it happen to become the kind of religious movement it became? Or at least we seem to understand it as a kind of a religious movement. There is the talking of walking and praying. There is the... The, the, the whole appeal to the religious, peaceful aspects, and, of course, a number of ministers have taken a very active part in the leadership. How did this come about? I think this came about because the ministers were very much interested in it, and we had our meetings in the churches, and being the minority, we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or a belligerent attitude. We believe that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance. We had no quarrel with anyone. We only want to stop riding the buses until we are treated as any other passenger. You're listening to From the Vault, the original weekly series produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. 
you just heard uh, Rosa Parks, that amazing woman on December 1st, 1955. She was a seamstress in Montgomery, Alabama, and she was tired. And as she just said in the last clip, she wasn't even sitting in the white section of the bus. She was actually sitting in the section of the bus that was designated for quote unquote colored people. But when the white section filled up, they asked three of them to stand uh, in so that white people could actually sit in the designated area of the colored section. And two of those people stood up with some hesitation, but Rosa Parks said no. She said, no, I'm tired. It is my right to sit here. I'm not getting up. I was arrested. And that simple act sparked the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, the famous uh, Montgomery bus boycott for over 300 days. Could you imagine 382 days? People in that city refused to take buses. They walked for miles. Carpools were were organized during that time, and it was a success. And the Pacifica Radio Archives, they have lovingly preserved the voice of Rosa Parks and other voices of that movement. They have Dorothy Danrich, uh, Coretta Scott King, Bell Hooks, Lena Horne, Carmen McRae. You know, not only were many of us of, of my generation, I guess I'm revealing a little of my age right now, were really made in the civil rights era. That means that every day as we continue our work in Pacifica and as we uh, work to implement the Pacifica mission and also in our activism out in the community, there are so many of us here at Pacifica are activists in our various communities. We remember uh, the power and the inspiration of those civil rights greats. And we're going to hear now the powerful, powerful voice of Fannie Lou Hamer. My home is in Rooseville, Mississippi. It's located in the Black Belt of Mississippi, known as the Delta area. I was forced away from the plantation because I wouldn't go back and withdraw, you know, my literacy test after I had tried to take it. I wouldn't go back, and I had to leave, and my husband was forced to stay on this plantation until after the harvest season was over, and then the man that we had worked for, he'd taken the car, and the most of the few things we had had been stolen, and I'd been in jail, and I'd been beat. I had been to a voter registration workshop, you know, to they were just training and teaching us how to register, to pass the literacy test. And it was giving us enough training that we could tell other people, you know, how to pass the literacy test. So we had attended a workshop from the 3rd of June to the 8th. And then we got the uh, Continental Trailway bus to come back to Mississippi. And we got to uh, Winona, Mississippi, uh, I would say about 10.30 that Sunday morning, on our way back to Greenwood, and that was we had gotten in 25 miles of the voter registration headquarters. And the bus stopped in Winona, you know, at the bus terminal, and four people got off of the bus, you know, to use the uh, restaurant to get food, and two people got off, used the washroom, while I was still on the bus. When I looked through the glass, I saw the people rush out. And one of the girls what had gone in the washroom, she just got back on the bus. And I stepped off to see what had happened. And uh, Miss Ponder told me that it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police on the inside and began to tap them on the shoulder with billy clubs and ordered them to get out. And I said, well, this is Mississippi. So I got back on the bus, and as soon as I was seated, 
I saw them when they began to put the five people what was you know off the bus, but they wasn't over uh, six feet from the bus. Began to put them in the highway patrolman's car, and I stepped off again because I was holding one of the ladies' irons, you know, that they was arresting. And she said, get back on the bus, Miss Hamer. And then I heard somebody scream from the car that she was in and said, get that one there. And then a white man stepped out of a car and told me I was under arrest. And when he opened the door and I went to get in the car, he kicked me. And they carried me on down to the county jail where they had the other highway patrolman had carried the other five. And they, you know, when I, we walked in, when I walked in with the two white men that had carried me down and they cursed me all the way down, they would ask me questions and when I would try to answer, they would tell me to hush. And I, when, we, when I walked inside of the booking room, one of the policemen went over and jumped up on one of the Negroes' feet that was with us. And then they just began to, you know, put us in cells. And I was put in a cell with Miss Vesta Simpson. And after I was put in this cell, I could just hear some horrible screams and horrible sounds, you know, of licks. And I saw one of the girls was 15 years old, was with us. And she passed my cell and she was real bloody. And then they asked the little man that cleaned up the jail to go inside and mop up that blood. And then I heard some more screaming and I heard some awful sounds. And I would hear somebody when they say, can't you say yes, sir, nigger? Can't you say yes, sir? And they would call her names that I wouldn't want to go on tape. And she said, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, and she said, I don't know you well enough. And I would hear when she would hit the floor again. And finally she began to pray and she asked God to have mercy on these people because they didn't know what they was doing. And after a while, they passed my cell door with this young woman, Miss Annelle Ponder, and one of her eyes looked like blood, and her hair was standing up on her head, and her clothes had been torn from the shoulder down to the waist. And then three white men came to my cell, and one of them was a state highway patrolman because he was wearing a little silver plate across his pocket that said John L. Bassinger. And he asked me where I was from, and I told him I was from Rouville. And he said, I'm going to check that. And he went out, and I guess he called Rouville. And they did, didn't did like me in Rouville because I worked with voter registration there. And when he came back, he said, you damn right. They said, you're from Rouville, all right. And we're going to make you wish you was dead. And they led me out of that cell into another cell. And he gave a Negro prisoner a blackjack, and he ordered me to lay down on a bunk bed. And a Negro prisoner said, do you want me to beat her with this, sir? And he said, you're damn right, because if you don't, you know what I'll do for you. And I laid down on the bunk like he ordered me to do. And the first Negro beat me. He beat me until he was exalted. And after he beat the state highway patrolman, ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. And during the time he was beating, I began to work my feet because that was a horrible experience. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro that had beat to sit on my feet while the second one beat. 
And I just began to scream where I couldn't control it. And then the white man got up and began to beat me in my head. I have a blood clot now in the outer to the left eye and a permanent kidney injury on the right side from that beating. These are the things that we go through in the state of Mississippi, just trying to be treated like a human being. But still, this is called a part of America. The Justice Department brought a suit against these five law officials from Mississippi. And they had their trial in Oxford. And they had every evidence in the world if it ever was going to be any people convicted. Because we had flew to Washington, D.C., and had the pictures made, and they had the pictures today of what happened to us in that jail. The bus driver, they even had the waitresses from Winona at the uh, bus tournament that said we hadn't done anything. We hadn't done no demonstration. The Negroes that they forced to beat me, they came and they told the truth. They told how these white men had made them drink corn whiskey before they did beat us because they figured, you know, if they didn't have something in them that they might not do it. They told all of that, and nothing have been done. Those same men, I guess, are still wearing their guns. They are very powerful in the state of Mississippi. But some of the people, I think, is beginning to get where now they just don't care. They are beginning to see if they try to do anything for themselves, well, they'll be killed anyway because it's nowhere that I would call myself going in the state of Mississippi to be protected by a police official because they are worse than a savage. As you know, the three civil rights workers that was murdered in Mississippi, they said their civil rights hadn't been violated, that they are dead. In fact, the same men, uh, Rainey and Price, was assisting the people across the street when they was having memorial service this year for Cheney and Goodman and Michael Strona. And Michael Strona was a Jewish person, but he was one of the greatest men I ever met. I knew him very well and his wife, Rita. And, and you know, I couldn't have went there for a memorial service, not and let these same two police officials guard me across the street. I wouldn't have been low enough to low their death to go across the street, let them guard me across the street. When it hadn't been for them, they wouldn't have been dead. The way I got involved in the Freedom Democrat Party is we tried to get in the regular Democrat Party. We tried from the precinct level up to the county and from the county to the state. I remember when we tried to attend the precinct meeting at the little polling place in Rooseville, it was eight of us, eight Negroes, went up to visit the precinct meeting, and the door was locked, and we couldn't get in. And we stood on the outside and held our own meeting. If we hadn't tried to go in it and then just set this one up, they would have said from the beginning, if we had tried, we could have got in theirs. We elected our chairman and our secretary, our delegates and our alternates, and we passed a law to resolution. The 24th of April in 1964, we organized at the Masonic Temple in Jackson, Mississippi, the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party. And then 
the 24th of August in 1964, we went to the National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, to challenge the seating of the regular delegation from Mississippi. We got quite an education in seeing what the whole Democrat Party of this country was like. In fact, I cried. I don't know would I really been involved in politics now if I had known it was like it is. We was offered two votes at large as a compromise in the convention, but after 100 years, we wouldn't accept a compromise because it didn't mean anything to 63,000 people at that time was registered with the Freedom Democrat Party, so we didn't compromise. So again, in January, beginning the 4th of January, the three candidates from the Freedom Democrat Party, Mrs. Gray, Mrs. Devine, and I went up before the door of the House of Representatives to contest the seating of the five representatives from Mississippi. And we was turned away, and we wasn't allowed to even go in to have, you know, to contest their seating. We didn't go there to be seated because we knew from the beginning that we wouldn't be seated, but we wanted to explain our side, whereas in a state that 42% of the people can't register, they wasn't representing us. And I think somebody, it's time now for somebody to be in Congress that's going to represent the people of Mississippi. And we wasn't allowed to go inside, but that didn't stop the challenge. We did have that day 100 and. 49 congressmen that stood up against these people being seated. So we are still working with this challenge, and we hope by the last of this month, which is August, that we will have a chance to unseat these congressmen, because actually this voting bill that the president passed last week, it doesn't mean anything, and I'm not looking for a voting bill in 1965 when they are not enforcing the voting bill and our voting rights with the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed us the same rights to vote from the 15th Amendment in 1870. And at that time, 1870, Mississippi was readmitted back to the Union because they promised at that time that they wouldn't do anything to disenfranchise Negroes to keep them from registering to vote. So now it's a matter of a violation of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And what I'm curious to see, do the Constitution of the United States mean anything? So far, it hadn't worked. And I'm sick of seeing this kind of stuff on paper. We want them to do something about it because we are a part of America, because we didn't come here on our own. Our parents and our descendants were from Africa, and we didn't come on our own, but we do want to be treated as human beings. And I'm fighting for human rights, not for eco rights.
You're listening to From the Vault, the original weekly series produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. For more information, call 1-800-735-0230 or log on to pacificaradioarchives.org. In 1966, Pacifica Radio produced a three-hour program honoring the short but brilliant career of author and playwright Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Hansberry is best known for her play A Raisin in the Sun, which became the first drama by a black woman to be produced on Broadway and has since then been produced many times in theater and film. She also wrote The Drinking Gourd, the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window where the protagonist was a Jewish intellectual, also The Movement, documentary of a struggle for equality, and also What Use Are Flowers. To Be Young, Gifted, and Black was adapted from her writings and produced off-Broadway in 1969. Lorraine Hansberry died of cancer on January 12, 1965, at the age of 35. We now present excerpts from this 1966 tribute to Lorraine Hansberry, narrated by Ozzie Davis. The highest gift that man has is art. And I am audacious enough to think of myself as an artist, uh, that there is both joy and beauty and illumination and communion between people to be achieved through the dissection of personality. That's what I want to do. I want to reach a little closer to the world, which is to say to people, and uh, see if we can share some illuminations together about each other. Joy and beauty and illumination and communion between people and the words and voice of Lorraine Hansberry, who was an artist. Tonight, 61 of her fellow artists in the American theater have joined to pay honor to a playwright who reached a little closer to the world by presenting what we think is the most appropriate of tributes possible, Lorraine Hansberry, in her own words, so that we might share some illuminations together about each other. The human race concerns me, and everything that that implies, which is the most ambitious thing you can say, and at the same time, the most modest, too, because uh, I can't think of anything that people do where conflict is born. 
Mm-hmm. It isn't dramatically interesting. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the role of the dramatist to select which part is most interesting. But tonight is less a portrait in the customary sense of a remarkable individual than it is a, a celebration in her own words, experiences, and the characters she created of the human spirit. I happen to believe that most people, and this is where I differ from many of my contemporaries, or at least as they express themselves, I think that virtually every human being is dramatically interesting. Not only is he dramatically interesting, he is a creature of stature, whoever he is. Lincoln said uh, in journalism that there there are no dull subjects, there are only dull writers. Mm -hmm. This is probably very, very true. and dramatic materials that most people have within them the core of their conflicts which give them stature if the writer is able to probe it. It's in the struggle to overcome a problem, whether it ends in failure or what we might call, for lack of a better word, success, Mm -hmm. that people exhibit their possibilities as beings. You know, the fact of getting up and going to work every day as a monumental tribute to the average human being. It really is, you see. And if you'd, you'd dissect it then and treat it with all the conflicts that the man has just getting out of the bed, mm. the things that must pass through his mind, the responsibilities, the weights, and he may be the worst worker at the office, you know, or at the factory. The but if you stop that moment in time, what he has done just to get out of bed and get on the subway is quite a thing. Lorraine Hansberry attended high school with the children of the black middle class, an integrated school, but her thought was shaped by the ghetto. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was, uh, you know, real American-type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, was the sort of American put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after gold. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. The how is what must concern the living, which was why she became an insurgent early and remained one all her life. Her theme was life, always life. And already in 1959, before any but a handful of friends knew the name Lorraine Hansberry, on the eve of the play that would bring her fame, A Raisin in the Sun, in a talk to fellow artists at a Negro Writers' Conference, she defined the objectives and the substance of all that was to come, the voices that of Anne Bancroft. I must share with you a part of a conversation I had with a young New York intellectual about a year ago in my living room in Greenwich Village. He was a young man I had known, not well, but for a number of years, who was, by way of description, an ex-communist, a scholar, and a serious student of philosophy and literature, 
and whom I considered to possess quite a fine and exceptionally alert mind. In any case, he and I had wandered conversationally into the realm of discussion which haunts the days of humankind everywhere, the destruction or survival of the human race. Why, he said to me, are you so sure the human race should go on? You do not believe in a prior arrangement of life on this planet. You know perfectly well that the reason for survival does not exist in nature. I was somewhat taken aback by the severity that this kind of feeling has apparently reached among a generation that presumably should be lying on its back in the spring woods somewhere, contemplating lyrics of love and daring and the wonder of wild lilies. I answered him the only way I could. I argued on his own terms, which are also mine, that man is unique in the universe. The only creature who has, in fact, the power to transform the universe. Therefore, it did not seem unthinkable to me that man might just do what the apes never will, impose the reason for life on life. That is what I said to my friend. I wish to live because life has within it that which is good, that which is beautiful and that which is love. Therefore, since I have known all of these things, I have found them to be reason enough, and I wish to live. Moreover, because this is so, I wish others to live for generations and generations and generations and generations. I was born on the south side of Chicago. I was born black and a female. I was born in a depression after one world war and came into my adolescence during another. While I was still in my teens, the first atom bombs were dropped on human beings at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And by the time I was 23 years old, my government and that of the Soviet Union had entered actively into the worst conflict of nerves in human history, the Cold War. I have lost friends and relatives through cancer, lynching, and war. I have been personally the victim of physical attack, which was the offspring of racial and political hysteria. I have worked with the handicapped and seen the ravages of congenital diseases that we have not yet conquered because we spend our time and ingenuity in far less purposeful wars. I have known persons afflicted with drug addiction and alcoholism and mental illness. I see daily on the streets of New York street gangs and prostitutes and beggars. I have, like all of you, seen on a thousand occasions indescribable displays of man's very real inhumanity to man. And I have come to maturity, as we all must, knowing that greed and malice and indifference to human misery and bigotry and corruption, brutality, and perhaps above all else, ignorance, the prime ancient and persistent enemy of man, abounds in this world. I say all of this to say that one cannot live with sighted eyes and feeling heart and not know and react to the miseries which afflict this world. I have given you this account 
so that you know that what I write is not based on the assumption of idyllic possibilities or innocent assessments of the true nature of life, but rather my own personal view that posing one against the other, I think that the human race does command its own destiny and that destiny can eventually embrace the stars. She wished to live and she wished others to live for generations and generations and generations. And it was her hope that, in some small measure, her words might help to make this possible. Rosemary Harris. I was born May 19, 1930, the last of four children. Seven years separated the last child and myself. I wear, I'm sure, the earmarks of that familial station to this day. Little has been written, or thought, to my knowledge, about children who occupy that place, the last born separated by an uncommon length of time from the youngest. I think we're probably a race apart. I suspect also that it may be a choice birth. This is because the station provides all vantage points. Such a person will have little enough fraternity with brothers and sisters who are seven, ten, twelve years older. The last born is an object toy, which comes at a time when they're old enough to appreciate it rather than poke out its eyes as the three and four-year-olds are wont to do. They do not mind diapering you the first two years, but by the time you're five, you're a pest that has to be attended to in the washroom taken to the movies and sat with at night. These things are all barriers because you're not a person. You're a nuisance who is not particular fun anymore. Consequently, you swiftly learn to play alone. Lorraine Hansberry at the microphone, playing with a new gift, a home tape recorder, and playing with words first discovered in a book at her father's study a handsome but seldom opened volume, a book of plays. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep, no more. I do not remember even thinking of other children in the earliest part of my childhood. I don't remember knowing that they existed or that I had any common cause whatsoever with them. The world, in fact, is divided in half as it is lived by me. There are those who think me the liveliest of types, a chattering, guitar-playing, slow-drag dancing, guzzling figure of Renaissance well-being. And then... There are the others, those latter-day images of the children of my youth who found me curious then, and still do. A serious, odd-talking kid who could neither jump double-dutch or understand their games, but who classically envied them, and their costumes, and the things which somehow gave them joy. Quarters, fights, and their fascination to come into the carpeted quiet of our apartment 
They, understandably, never understood or believed my envy, and they never will. In any case, my mother sent me to kindergarten in white fur in the middle of the Depression, and that fact has surrounded my mentality with what is probably undue poignancy. The kids beat me up, and I think it was from that moment I became a rebel. From the novel, All the Dark and Beautiful Warriors. I don't think very many people realize how boring, aside from being nauseating, that, that uh, stereotype notions are also very dull. I, you know, I think this, this is said not often enough that uh, it isn't only a matter that Porgy and Bess... I'm talking about the book now because, once again, this is good music. This is beautiful music. I think this is great American music in which the roots of our native opera are to be found someday. But the book, the, the Du Bois Haywood book, uh, not only is that offensive, you know, it isn't only that it insults me because it's, it's a degrading concept and a degrading way of looking at people, but it's bad art because it doesn't tell the truth, and fiction demands the truth. You know, you have to give a many-sided character. In other words, there is no excuse for stereotypes. You're listening to From the Vault, the original weekly series produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives. Our theme for this hour is Beat the Drum, the Power of African American Women. And at Town Hall, a forum. Subject, the Negro Revolution and the White Backlash. Participants, David Suskind, Leroy Jones, Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, James Wexler, and Lorraine Hansberry, among others. Was it ever so apparent we need this dialogue? (laughs) (sighs) How do you talk about 300 years and four minutes? I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently which didn't get printed which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal. What it, uh, what it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the Stalin. Because when the Stalin was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's going crazy, you know, tying up traffic, what's the matter with them? You know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York among what we're all here calling the the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're going to ruin everything we're trying to do, you know. (laughs) And that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was, uh, you know, real American-type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, was the sort of American who put a great deal of money 
a great deal of his really extraordinary talents and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a, a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. My father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? And it isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication of transformation of their situation, from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. I would like to submit that the problem is that yes, there is a problem about white and liberal. The problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to, to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. I think that then it wouldn't, when that becomes true, some of the really eloquent things that were said before about the basic fabric of our society, which, after all, is the thing which must be changed, you know, uh, to, to, to really solve the problem. You know, the, 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 the basic organization of American society is the thing that has Negroes in the situation that they are in, and never let us lose sight of it. It is entirely different, you see, the way that you would assess the Vietnamese war and the way I would, because I can't believe... believe that anyone who is given what an American Negro is given, you know, our viewpoint, can believe that a government which has at its disposal a Federal Bureau of Investigation which cannot ever find the murders of Negroes, and by that method never, no, please, and shows that it cares really very little about American citizens who are black, really are over somewhere fighting a war for a bunch of other colored people, you know, uh, several thousand miles, you just have a different viewpoint. This, this is why we want the dialogue, to, to explain that to you. I, I think, uh, since we closed on a peculiar note for the break, that I, for one, would like to identify my position. Uh, radicalism is not alien to this country, neither black nor white. And we have a very great tradition of white radicalism in the United States. 
And I've never heard Negroes boo the name of John Brown. So there's no problem, no matter how excited we get, I think ultimately anybody at this table who wants to read any patriot out of the Negro movement, it's not the point. Some of the first peoples who have died so far in this struggle have been white men. And I, for one, would be prepared, I must say, an exception to anything said, to accept the leadership of a person who gives that much devotion as against someone who would exhibit the uh, traitorous characters of, of uh, say, a Moise Chambé. Uh, I don't think that we can decide ultimately on the basis of color. The passion that we express should be understood, I think, in that context. We want total identification. It's not a question of reading anybody out. It's, it's a merger, but it has to be a merger on the basis of true and genuine equality. And if we think that it isn't going to be painful, we're mistaken. I know that you, for instance, are an admirer of our late president. And he presumed, with all respect to the dead, I, but he happens to have been our president, so I have to talk about him that way, uh, to have suggested to the world that if our foreign policy were not honored with regard to Cuba, that we would blow up the world, you see. And we live in a nation where everything which is talked about, is talked about in terms of the fact that we are going to be the mightiest, the toughest, the roughest cats going, you know, in the whole world. And, and when a Negro says something about, I'm tired, I can't stand it no more, I want to hit somebody, you say that we're sitting here panting and ranting for violence, you know? It's not right. I think it's very simple that the, the question of the, the whole idea of debating whether or not Negroes should defend themselves is an insult. That does it for this week's program. From the Vault is a weekly program produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the University of California Berkeley's Moffitt Library, the Pacifica Foundation, and from contributions from Pacifica Station listeners. For more information on this program or to purchase a copy, go online at fromthevaultradio.org or call us at 1-800-735-0230. This week's episode was written and produced by Mark Torres and Margaret Prescott. From the Vault is executive produced by Brian DeShazer and the Pacifica Radio Archives. If you're in the Los Angeles area and would like to volunteer on From the Vault, please go to our website to find out how. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. I'm Margaret Prescott. Thanks for listening.